0: Stuck of you here. Aiden, go ahead and
1: introduce yourself. Hey guys, I'm Aiden Mattis. I'm the host of the lore lodge on YouTube, Spotify, basically everywhere you could listen to something.
0: Yeah, we um we had done an episode actually, how far back was that? I know it was one of the ones I was in that we've so It must have been
1: before November.
0: <laughs> before November, yeah. I know that we did an episode there back at that time because yeah. I know I did one with you and I did one with Fat Electrician. Yes. Right there. And at that time we'd had kind of a just a general discussion. I, I still remember. I still remember. The whole point of that was that we were going to be going deep into like Vikings and TV shows and stuff about that, and then it just spiraled into all different kinds of uh, medieval history and weird facts and other stuff. There was there was a legitimate attempt to you know stay on topic. Yeah, but I think the same thing is going to end up (laughs) happening this time because I actually have no notes or anything prepared like I normally would for any kind of episode. So for anyone who is listening right now, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and, and apologize, but also simultaneously thank you for being here. Because I guess this one is going to be way more off the cuff than what the
1: usual podcasts are like. See, that's that's easy for me because we never have a script <laughs> for our show. I, I honestly I, I laugh when I see other not like a haha you You're so stupid. But like, I, I just I don't think that our show could be done with a script because there we get off topic so much and most of the show ends up being me wildly speculating about things. So I agree with that. I agree with that.
0: There's one there's one thing that ends up happening to me. I need a not a script, but I need notes in front of me for one specific reason. It's not that I'm going to forget something. It's that if I don't have the thing that is the sequence of events that I would need to follow in order to tell the story, because usually I'm explaining something to tell a story of why something is the way it is or explaining how something came to be. Then there will always be tangents that are not in the notes whatsoever. But every single time that that happens. I will go so far off topic that I need to go like, wait, hold on. Where the hell was I in the conversation now? And I mm-hmm. have to go back to where I was in the notes to know. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. Now this is the next section that we have to talk about.
1: Yeah. That's why it's nice. having having other Aiden in there. <laughs> I can always be like, wait, what was I talking about? And he's like, uh, such and such. Oh, okay, cool. Let's get on. <laughs> but yeah, I, I loved that last one because it was, it, there was definitely an attempt to talk about Vikings and it just turned into everything else. But since then, you know, I, I've, I've started getting back into the history stuff. We just launched a new channel called the history hut. And I forgot how much fun all of the history stuff could be. I've been so lost in like the folklore and true crime world for so long that getting into it and sitting down and actually reading through historical documents. Like I was reading Tertullian. Oh, for class for my master's program. And I was actually enjoying it because it's been that long. (laughs) that I'm sitting there reading some of the driest material written about any subject ever. And it's basically just this like second century, third century uh, doctor of the church who's sitting there going, you know, all right. So uh, basically here, here's why everyone sucks. Um, here's what all <laughs> the problems are. And especially women, women are just the worst, except for these specific like seven women. But outside of that, like, Oh my God. <laughs> and of course, you know, you get into the, this this, super niche stuff when you do uh, historical studies on things that aren't like the main topics, like obviously most people who are researching the second century are going to be researching the Roman empire.
0: Mm -hmm. That is is pretty much
1: everyone. I want that
0: You say that because we're starting a whole content thing for what I'm, uh, because I'm changing how my content is produced. mm -hmm. So we're going with like a weekly theme of what things are going to focus on Mm -hmm. from the short content to the historical content, to the game content. It's all going to be, it's all going to match. It's all going to try to match like that week. But yes, we're starting with Rome specifically because as you said, it is literally the 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 beginning point mm-hmm. for any kind of basic Western nerd that starts to get into this yep. stuff.
1: Exactly, and then I think a lot of people they kind of get stuck in the 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 legionnaires and the emperors and the philosophy, and then there's this little stuff like uh, the the story, the Passion of Perpetua, which is about a Roman woman living in Carthage in the second century AD who is and this is early early christian literature like the second century a.d this is some of the earliest christian writing we have outside of the bible dang okay like yeah. mid persecution where yeah. it's
0: particularly the, bad this is before
1: time. the the Dishan persecutions mm. like so this is it um i'm trying to remember which emperor it was it's driving me nuts uh but what i found interesting looking into it is the narrative that you often think of is the it's from the top down it's the emperor who was saying persecute the christians This story makes it very clear. I think it was uh, Saturninus was the proconsul of Carthage at the time, I want to say, the proconsul of Africa. And what you start to see is that the empire's stance on it prior to Decius was, okay, this is, you know, something weird. We don't like it. They're not respecting the emperor, but we're going to kind of let the regions handle it as they see fit. Let the proconsuls do it, whatever. As opposed to the later decian persecution, where it's from the top down, and it's the proconsuls are handling Christianity differently in every case. Oh yeah. So in Africa, it's you have all these chances to to just sacrifice something to the emperor, just just do it, just say you respect the emperor's authority. They're like, we'll pray for the emperor's good health. <laughs> proconsuls are like, mm, that's not really what we mean. You you got the Jews were sacrificing to the emperor, and they're like, the Jews are sacrificing for the emperor. They're like. It's just this constant back
0: and semantics, forth. semantics, but it is very important when it comes yeah. to religion, like for the exact terminology and a reason why you're
1: doing something. And then it, it just it goes. And it, what starts off is this little story of like a woman who is so convicted in her faith that she would rather be martyred. It turns into this is like the basis for a almost cult of martyrdom that develops. Oh, Afterwards. my God, the
0: Christian called martyr that.
1: Yeah, you got Christians who are like, you know, I'm a Christian. Out. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, guys. I'm a Christian. And the Romans were kind of like, OK, <laughs> it to it the point where they're with- even like pulling themselves onto Roman swords to be mm-hmm. martyred
0: mm-hmm. because <laughs> the early belief was that if you were martyred, that was a guaranteed ticket to heaven. Exactly.
1: It's. Like, it's so, so interesting, but it's so granular and niche oh, No, it really is. And actually, that, that's one of
0: the things we, we've we covered in a previous episode. So we just did the Antonine plague mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and it goes into the thing for Christian persecution during that time. Mm-hmm. And that is when it starts to become way more top down, like where it's actually ordered and it's similar to what was happening with, say, the Jews over the course of the bubonic plague. The same thing was kind of happening to Christians during the Antonine plague. Yeah. And what happens during that point is that there is so much depopulation that. Rome loses a lot of its military prowess. It simply loses the ability to recruit men into the Mm -hmm. army because there are no men. There's no one left. And with Christian Christianity at that time being so heavily pacifistic. They're refusing to fight. So now you have people who are refusing to fight that the government is now pissed off because they're losing troops and they have no way to replace it. And more and more people are converting to this faith. That they hate
1: because they can't use them as soldiers for their highly militaristic state. Mm-hmm. And it's and of course you look at that and then you look at Christianity a thousand years later and you're like, oh, oh boy. Oh yeah. <laughs> what yeah. happened here? Holy war <laughs> happened. <laughs> it goes from the Christians being the exact opposite to the Christians being and I say this as as somebody who's Christian. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not not ragging on them for it. It's just very funny to look at the, the change from we're being persecuted. Because it's the same idea. If you look at the Crusades versus the martyrdom period, mm-hmm. where martyrdom gateway to heaven, you know, absolves you of any of your sins. It is the best thing you can do. It makes you into a hero. Your legends will be told, and more people will convert and be saved. The it's the exact same thing in the Crusades, where there there are people who are like, I have all of these sins, and the Pope goes, Well, if you go kill some Saracens, you don't be have them anymore, and so a whole bunch of people go. It's just two two very different. Uh, actions being taken for the exact same goal. Yep. And it's those things that throughout history, behavior might change, but motivations really don't. Mm -mm. No, 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 because people are
0: always seeking it because you have the ones who are, especially during the time of the crusades, it's done for a dual purpose. It is money and faith. Mm -hmm. It really is because the idea heading into the East was for some, a get rich quick scheme. Yep. But the crusades are to that, to the same degree that the gold rush was to pioneers. Mm-hmm. I mean, for anyone who who is not really aware of this for um, like for when the gold rush happened, people think like, oh, yeah, so much gold was found. This was a way that you could strike it rich. Well, yeah, you could. But the likelihood of that occurring was so astronomically low that the majority of people who went in their search for gold didn't even break even. Yep. Like they did not break. They Most lost, lost money. more money than they, they, they gained. And that's the ones that even made it. Yep. That's <laughs> the ones that even made it. And the exact same thing happened on the Crusades that people went on the Crusades, basically bankrupting themselves. The amount of nobles, minor nobles who mortgaged their homes out mm-hmm. to merchants and other groups. And then they went off and either just died or they went out and like, all right, we conquer this. What do we conquer? Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Pastoral desert yep. with a rock that doesn't actually have anything because the valuable trade r- routes were still further in into. Mm-hmm
1: persia um and then on top of that there's you know the the my favorite one of all time which is the fact that richard the lionheart bankrupted the entire nation of england oh my to go yes. crusading we covered and then that. managed to conquer like three islands on his way but yeah it's just, like richard the lionheart was first it's it's kind of funny on the one hand he hated it oh yeah you no, know, he may have been it, but he hated it and so bankrupts the country and as a result poor prince john because King John, when he becomes king, King John is just sitting, he's left with a, an empire. Honestly, the, you know, the, the Angovan Empire was how it was referred to at the time. So he's left with an entire empire that is bankrupt on the brink of civil war, made up of three to five different, different ethnic groups that don't like each other. And the Anglican Church is still a couple hundred years in the future, like 400 years in the future but you're starting, you're starting throughout to Europe to see the beginning of religious descent in the 1200s. Yeah. So John handed the worst possible situation. And how does history remember him? The As guy who, the tried guy who tried to killed Robin Hood. Yeah. <laughs> the guy who tried to steal the crown from his brother. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh uh, all those taxes that are
0: referenced that were being levied. Yeah. That was to pay for Richard the Lionheart's uh, ransom because after mm-hmm. he went and gotten himself captured because he pissed off things diplomatically by, Uh, dishonoring
1: (laughs) by dishonoring the Austrians. Yep. Which is in the medieval period, never a good idea. They kind of had a lot of power. Oh yeah. That's my favorite part is that he got handed off by some count from Austria to the Holy Roman Emperor, because the only person in Europe who could possibly resist the influence of the Pope was the Holy Roman Emperor.
0: Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Which that's something that I, I love to get into. Okay. So we were, we were recently in France and we had just gotten back here. And when, while, while we were over there, we had met up with um, we had met up with some people and they were talking about, say, the, the, the different relations between gr- different groups of people and how like it is now. But mm-hmm. it was so interesting where even in places like we were in London and the amount of, say, Irish people that had actually met up with us that the general consensus was of if the English and we, they were talking about like, Oh yeah. Cause they were like Northern Irish, mm-hmm. but they were Northern Irish was in support of the Irish Republic. And it was very interesting <laughs> because you were seeing all this, this calm everyday life, everything would be going and then it would just bubble up with religious tension. And I just cannot help but think that that is the story of the Isles, mm-hmm. and just, constant fighting between people
1: oh yeah Uh, the the british the history of the british isles is one of those it's it's difficult because so much of it is speculation we have almost no idea what happened before rome got there it's all just been reconstructed through archaeology yeah
0: and for (laughs) the few scraps of oral tradition that managed to last until they could be written down i think largely
1: by the venerable beat. Wasn't yeah, that in like was, the seventh century? Bede was a lot of it. Uh, Bede, Nennius, Gildas, um, Gildas was a little bit more. He was a little less interested in the Celtic history and more interested in the Celtic peoples as Christians. But uh, yeah, you start to see these these little groups here and there, and then the poetry starts bringing up with Taliesin and Niren, and you know. But by this time, the Picts are almost gone. Yeah. <laughs> by the time we start getting any writing about the people of the British Isles, an entire group of them that used to make up half the island is almost completely been destroyed by invading Scots from Ireland. That again, the, everyone knows. So so you the Gaelic Scots, know, but yet, yeah. The Scots were from Ireland. It was the, the, we're still not entirely sure what even happened here. We're not sure who made up the Dalriatans. It's believed that, so the, the term Scoti in old Irish was a term for raider or outlaw or foreigner. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically somebody without a home. And so Scotland doesn't come from, there wasn't a tribe of Scots. It was, that's where all these Scoti went, was over the sea into Scotland, into Pictland. And they merged with the Picts. And then of course the Norwegians come in. And by the time we get any writing about it, the Picts themselves are gone. All we know is that they were similar to the Welsh, but that's that's it all. And of course the Welsh we know most about from the, the Romans, you know, from their writing about the British, the British Isles and the British people. Yep, which that's
0: pretty much how it goes in history, where the knowledge that we have of ancient peoples largely comes from the perspective of either archaeology that we have been able to piece together or from the perspective of the descendants of people who had conquered them hundreds of years earlier.
1: We, we, we still know where the Irish came from. Wait, hold, hold on, hold on. Can you... We, we do not know where the Irish came from. Where the Irish... Yeah. The, the people we currently know as the Irish, we're not sure when they got to Ireland. I've never actually thought about that. We're it, and it's there's we we've narrowed it down. It's probably somewhere between 500 BC and 580. Like, <laughs> there's that's a, a that's a nice range
0: there that we're talking. Hold <laughs> on, but you say between five? I wouldn't make sense for 580 because the Romans were launching expeditions in there specifically to try and well, not exactly conquer, but they were mm-hmm. they were punitary expeditions that they were launching into Ireland mm-hmm. didn't actually work, but they were doing some damage. So they were there prior to the Romans. At least we know that
1: somebody was there. Okay. No, to be, <laughs> yeah, okay, you're right. Somebody <laughs> I, was there. And how do the Romans describe the people in Ireland at the time is the, is the big question. Does it match the way they describe the people in Britain? There's not a ton of descriptions of Ireland. So what we, what we know is that there was a population in Ireland before the people we know as Irish as Gaelic. Mm-hmm. And then there is a population of people we know as Gaelic. We are uncertain how they got there. Not because we had no clue before. We we thought we knew. And then they started doing genetic testing. And what they've been finding is that the Irish have uh, haplogroups that, co- that correspond with Iberians. Oh, wait, no, no. there's
0: um There has been something that is like that, but that came from... Oh, God, why can I not remember? I remember even studying this, uh, not even studying, like learning from my family history going back um, because there were people that were referred to effectively as like the Black Irish, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, not not like African. No, no, no. But no. as Dark referred haired, to as dark-haired, dark-haired like Iberian mm-hmm. because of the amount of people that came over from
1: like the Iberian. When was that, though? Why can I that's not what remember? This to, is bothering me. That, that's what we don't know is we don't know when that happened. There's the na Erin, which is the book of the invasions of Ireland, um, the book of the takings of Ireland, and that gives us six different invasions of Ireland, going back to uh, the... Oh God, why is it slipping my mind? Um, the people of Cassair, I think, are the first ones. But basically what it says is, and a, a lot of this has been Christianized, we don't actually... This is probably not true, but I... <laughs> It goes back to the the flood. Basically, the first people in Ireland are people that were from Noah's tribe who he sent to Ireland. It's clearly BS. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the further back you go into this story, before the the legitimate efforts of Christianization, just some of the people recording what the Irish the Christians still, but recording what the Irish were telling them, um, they say stuff along the lines of that there were only three migrations into Ireland, and the Milesians, the last one. Um, it's believed that the term may come from "milites," the Roman word for, for soldier. Uh, and what, it, what people think is that it may have been Celtiberian auxiliaries that went to Ireland.
0: Everybody shush. William Shatner has something to say.
1: Cat and Jethro box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies?
0: and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the
2: strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the
0: lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Could very well be considering what we'd be talking about with the depth of the Roman military and bringing in from different people's. Mm. And by the time that that is going on, more and more auxiliary services or auxiliary units are serving within the legions, mm-hmm. specifically because they don't have as many
1: legion air forces yep. out of Italia to serve. And think, if you're on the western edge of the empire and you don't want to live under Roman rule, where do you go? I mean, you go north. There's only one place, there's only, well, two places left that you even might know about, and it's going to be Hibernia and Northern Britain. Hibernia is the one that, it's not confirmed that there's cannibals there yet. Uh, so, Oh, (laughs) Oh yes. (laughs) The big stories. So, but yeah, it's, it's this super fascinating thing. But the part of the reason the question has been asked for so long is that if the Irish were Brythonic Celts, just like the Welsh, the Cornish, the Picts, Mm -hmm. if they had been Brythonic Celts, their language would have been similar to Brythonic Celtic to the, the various versions of that. It's not. It's it's continental Celtic instead of insular Celtic. So the Irish speak a language that would have been more similar to Celtiberian and Gallic languages than it is to Brithonic Celtic languages. That's why Irish and Welsh are for the most part significantly different languages. Weren't people talking about the
0: relations they would have with the ancient Bretons? Not Britons, yeah, but I don't Bretons
1: I'm not positive about the uh, the Breton. Um, but I think they my understanding of them was that they came from Cornwall. Mm-hmm and cross the sea. I'm not positive on that one, but when it comes to the actual, like I want to, I want to say that it is Welsh is a P Celtic language and Irish is a Q Celtic language. I believe that Breton is the same as I believe that Breton is P Celtic as well as Welsh. Interesting, which is yeah. And, and also, I mean, when you get into the Celts as, as a topic,
0: well, yeah, we're talking about a very, very large group. You might as well, in that situation, be saying the Slavs because yeah. it's that large and wide-reaching of a group. It's so many
1: different, considerably bigger than like the Latins, the Greeks. <laughs> you know, this is you're start that at that point you're starting to look at like Hellenistic, yeah, Slavic, Germanic, Celtic, Syriac, like these big broad groups, and yeah. So, you know, what we know is Celtic culture. The term Keltui was just an early word for barbarian. It didn't really mean specifically any one ethnicity. Um, It turns into, of course, a specific group of people who speak a specific set of languages and have a specific design pattern for their their artistry. One of the first recognizable Celtic things uh, after the Hallstatt cultures is the Latin culture. And that is the spirals. That you oh, see. the spiral like when you would see on the shields and everything, yep. and it would have like the set of three spirals that would loop around. Yeah. And that's on when and itself. that's when you start to see like Celtic as an identity begin to form, because the Hallstatt culture we believe had the Celtic languages, some of the early Celtic behavioral practices, using wagons and things like that for burials, the stuff that the Celts did later on. So we the Hallstatt culture, of course, comes from like you know the east of Switzerland and Austria. There's a, an area called Hallstatt which I think means something along the lines of salt mines. Uh, And the thing is, the Welsh word for salt, if I'm not mistaken, is Halloween, which Halstead is named after salt. So
0: That is interesting. I mean, to be fair, you're talking about a time period where there were large amounts of migrations. Mm -hmm. We think about nowadays in terms of migrations and people moving and how it's going to change things, but it's much more easy to identify now with modern technology But going back in history, people as particularly different tribes would be migrating around for any number of reasons, largely which would have to do with, say, either war or the weather. (laughs) I mean, this is one of the reasons why when people are thinking of the fall of the Roman Empire and the migration of the tribes, it wasn't just one or two or three or four tribes. You're talking about hundreds of different tribal groups spread out across the continent of Europe going into the steppes of Asia that are moving and interacting with each other at the same time. It's one of the reasons, like, when we look at, say, we have the Anglo-Saxons. Well, it's because you had the Angle tribe and you had the Saxon tribes. And within them sub tribes. <laughs> and within them sub tribes. And those the Jutes are, who don't get talked about. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, the Jutes, the Gates, and
0: yeah. um there was another one that I cannot remember here. Jutes would have
1: been for for those who don't know, Jutes would have been uh northern Denmark. Yeah, like Jutland. The Gates would have been uh, in, over in the uh, the Vic, basically in Sweden and Norway. Mm-hmm. And so the Angles. Were so the Angles
0: and the Saxons interact and create Anglo-Saxon, mm-hmm. and that's where that comes from. And of course, the Anglo-Saxon then has to deal with the Normans. The Normans are the combination between the French and the
1: like the Norwegians. And of course, the Norwegians are still involved themselves. Yeah, <laughs> as <laughs> are the Danes. That's the other thing is you get all these. Uh, England was conquered like seven different times across the Viking Age by various groups. Yep, like and it was the Danes, the Norwegians, the English reconquering it, the French reconquering it, like. So there's so much going on. And if you look at what really eventually forces the Anglo-Saxons to coalesce into one group instead of being the Angles in the Northeast and the Saxons in the Southwest, it's the invasion of a third group. It's the Norwegians coming. In. The Danes yep. coming in. And there's, they get in there and they're like, ah, this is our territory now. And the Anglo-Saxons go, well, we're more similar than, than we are to either of them. So, I mean, it's better if we side together i guess not to mention <laughs> during that time we, we go back to talking about christianization
0: that is when you start to see large yeah. developments and more of not a national identity We're our oh, our culture is basically the same where we're now one cultural group group it's the religious part that yeah. is more
1: important for us and that's why they ended up that which is it's so fascinating the way that religion plays into this because what you see is the, the the anglo-saxons and the celts have been fighting for by the time the vikings are getting there 400 years oh yeah so, I mean the first the first Saxon incursions into Britain were in the 440s, I think. And they've been fighting them with the Celts and the the yep. the the, the Iceni and the different like yep. groups that were within there already. And then the Norwegians come and the Celts and the Anglo-Saxons kind of look at each other and go, "You know what? We have bigger problems." <laughs> they don't really side together like the the movie, they're not the movie. The TV show The Last Kingdom has the Welsh fighting alongside the Anglo Saxons at one point. I don't uh, uh, yes, think that happens sure. at the scale that it did in that. But they did both fight the Norwegians. The and, Welsh
0: fighting alongside other people
1: rather than each other. Yes. Yeah.
0: Definitely. That's totally what
1: would. Ha- one of one of the only uh, people in Welsh history to have uh, the title of High King, like and, and actually like be able to use it and say this this was real rather than just ceremonial, was a guy named Roger uh which means Roger the Great. Uh, Roger, of course, meaning red. It derives from like Red King. He was High King Rod Remar. There was a Norwegian invasion that was going to come to Chester. Got blown off course. Ended up in uh, Gwyneth, Wales. Mm-hmm. North, northwestern Wales. The Welsh ended up killing. Uh, I think it was uh, a Viking uh, warlord named Magnus. I can't remember which one specifically. But they end up killing. And halting what would have almost certainly been an invasion that took Chester from the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> and how did the Anglo-Saxons repay the favor? By committing a genocide against the Welsh. Yeah. No. Like, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> it's I, I'm not sure that any
1: one culture has committed more genocides than the English. <laughs> I think they probably take the cake for most genocides by a single nation. Add the Mongols. If you we were talking about as a single group, because if you
0: say the English, if you're gonna go back descendants-wise it's mm-hmm. all the different groups, and then you're talking about the individual groups within them, because yeah, yeah, I guess the Mongols do, there's many, many, many different smaller groups that wiping them out would be. Well, I mean, they're they're significantly smaller than an entire
1: larger nation state or anything like that. Yeah, I, I my favorite thing about English like practices with that is that they just come in and they're like, OK, it's no longer legal for you to speak your own language, own land in your own country. Um, you can't have weapons and you have to have our religion now. And it's just basically a story of everybody going. We don't like those terms and England going, well, we have 18 times your population deal with it. <laughs> the story of the British Isles. <laughs> and it's always it's always whoever is in England because it's the, it's the most fertile land the yep. area, which you're going to see
0: that in terms of the most developments, because I know that we've been ranting rather <laughs> rapidly very quickly about different topics over the course of this entire conversation. So far, there is actually an aspect that I would like to spin this to that. I just realized sure. as a topic is something that I find fascinating and love and not nearly as many people get us hyped about it, because it, <laughs> it is very important. It's extremely important. So in warfare, I oftentimes talk a lot about logistics, because mm-hmm. logistics is the most important part of warfare. But in terms of nation building, geography, And for I don't know if anyone can hear this right now, but my cat is meowing immediately below me while I'm doing this because she's begging for attention between the two of us. She's very cute. She is. She is very cute. She's also a little bit annoying when she wants to get her fat butt up here and cry for attention. <laughs> um, so geography when it comes to nation building is the most important thing at all, like more so than culture, more so than anything. The geography is the thing that will shape the culture. It will be the thing that shapes the people in the nation. So when you have a place that is being built up in the first place, the most developed societies in the ancient world were always by rivers. Yep. Naturally, because you wanted floodplains. You wanted the things that you can irrigate your crops you you this is what you're going to need and then past that you are also going to simultaneously then want things that are on the coast to allow for trade because you can trade along rivers but rivers have much stronger currents that are significantly harder to work with if they're not going in your favor
1: and they're not nearly as deep
0: right (laughs) and then you naturally need
1: safe boundaries rivers mountains forest things that will serve as a kind of barrier Mm -hmm. or you can do it off of the Mercians didn't build a trench around Wales. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, Wales has a lot of hills, though. It does. Like a lot of hills. It does. And, and that's a lot why it was so which That's why both, Wales is Wales and not anything further into England.
0: <laughs> it made it so very defensible, but it simultaneously made it a bitch and a half for anyone to try to unify while within it. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't going to be a thing that could easily be done. It's the same reason why the Asturians were able to resist the Muslims that had come out of the south. Well, like with the uh, with Al Andalus, yeah, because you yeah, had the Pyrenees mountains, but even then, outside of the Pyrenees, northern the regions where they mm-hmm. are is pure hills. Yep, it's just pure hills, and so it would be awful to try and take.
1: Yeah, so many of our modern borders are defined by natural natural boundaries, which is insane considering the level of technology we have. And it's those
0: borders <laughs> within England, that's just the sheer variance that they would have that would help create so many of the different mm-hmm. cultures. And of course, you're going to have England itself being the most temperate and fertile of them that is going to create the biggest population that anyone who controls it is then going to be the one that pushes around the others, even if they're going to be annoying and hard to take because you got the hills of Wales, you got the highlands of Scotland, you got the marshes of Ireland, you got it's going to be a pain in the ass to take, but you will always outnumber
1: them. Yeah, I uh, I feel like it was probably 1403, I want to say there was a battle at I think it was Chester. Again, I haven't I haven't actually looked at my paper on this in a really long time. I want to say it was Chester. If it wasn't Chester, it was somewhere in the general uh, vicinity of the the northern border between England and Wales. There was a moment at which the the triple entente between um, the tripartite indenture, that's what it was called uh, at the time, between the Welsh under O the southern English under Sir Edmund Mortimer who was the acting Earl of Hereford, his son, or his nephew, uh, another Edmund Mortimer, was the heir to that Earlhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Duke of York all created an alliance against Henry IV because they were all uh, loyalists to Richard II. So the plan they had, and this could have changed the course of history completely, and almost nobody knows it happened. The plan they had was that their three forces, because the Duke of York controlled all of Northern England, Mm-hmm. Now, he, he was probably the second most powerful person in England after the king. He controlled an army that could at least rival Henry the Fourth. It would need help, but it could, it could actually, at, at the very least in defensive battles, hold its own. And then Mortimer controlled some of the most fertile land, as well as a large portion of the population. And then Owen had a almost impenetrable home base in Wales. Because the, the, the Welsh weather beat the English army on one occasion. That's not even a joke. It was so windy that they actually could not march through Wales. Uh, The king of England was almost killed after a spear was blown off the rack and sent right at him. But he was wearing his armor. Damn. Okay. at least that's what the records say. But It's probably that like a spear was blown off a rack and fell near him and they all panicked. But the story is that I also can't
0: help but imagine that the primary strength of
1: England, its longbows, would be rendered
0: completely useless. One of
1: my favorite episodes from this war is, I can't remember the name of the battle. That's going to drive me nuts. I need to go back and and reread this paper and probably expand it into a full journal article because it it was so much fun to write. There's one battle where Owen's forces were up on a hill. They were wildly outnumbered, but they're up on a hill. And he has his cavalry behind the hill, out of view. He didn't have many, and they were all light cavalry anyway, skirmishers. You know, basically people armed with javelins, spears, and a wooden shield, uh, as well as a small number of knights. He had a number of spearmen up on the hill. And behind those spearmen, he had his archers, his, his longbowmen. Mm-hmm. And this is, keep in mind, this is 1400. This is the height of the Welsh longbow. Yep. Welshmen who were longbowmen trained with it from the age of seven years old. Yep. Now, the English usually took people from the marches, the border, with, with England, because they could not penetrate further into Wales and actually survive, because, you know, they would disappear off the road. I, <laughs> So the Welsh had had, you know, at least at least equal on the archery front. But the thing about the English longbow corps was that they were primarily Welsh. They were primarily Welsh soldiers from either the marches where you had a split population or deeper into Wales were recruited out because of money. So what Owen did was he sent his men, his agents, his longbowmen to go and sign up on the English side and then foment dissent within the English ranks. And as the English infantry were making their way up that hill, obviously they had their shields in front of them. They can take the onslaught of the arrows from in front. It's going to get through a few times, but as they're about halfway up the hill, just as they're about to engage with the Welsh infantry, the English longbows, about half of them to to two thirds, turn and start shooting into the backs of the English infantry. Oh. And in order to prevent them from being massacred by English cavalry, the Welsh cavalry ride out at that moment. So it is some of the most masterful planning for a battle when you're outnumbered that anybody's ever done. And part of the reason that it was so possible for Owen to do this stuff, he was the squire to Henry IV. Got the relationship. He, he worked as a squire for both Henry IV and Richard II in Scotland and Ireland. He knew English battle tactics. He knew precisely what the English were going to do, and he used it against them. and. So that's the thing is he had he had the money and the troops, he probably could have won the war. That's why he needed the Earl of Hereford and the Duke of York. So he marries the I want to say he marries the daughter of the Earl of Hereford or it may have been he'd married the daughter of the Duke of York. I can't totally remember. No, Edmund Mortimer marries one of Owen's daughters and Owen is married to someone in the Duke of York family, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. They all are prepared to attack the English at I think it's Chester. I really think it's Chester. The army from the south isn't there yet. And the Duke of York's army is there under his son, Henry Hotspur. As you can imagine, a man with the nickname Hotspur got it for a reason. The Welsh are on the way. They're a couple days away. The two English forces don't need to commit to battle. Hotspur can withdraw if the, the king's men start lining up. He can also stand and, and wait. Instead, uh, the English forces line up and head out and Hotspur, does, he engages them. Yep. Yep. He should have waited. He would have had significant reinforcements, an entire like huge division of Welsh longbowmen who would have evened the playing field. They inflict some pretty serious casualties, but Hotspur is killed. A couple of Owens lieutenants are killed. A couple of Edmund Mortimer's lieutenants are killed. And the Welsh withdraw. Had they won that battle? The plan was to divide England in three parts with the Welsh taking a a sliver of the center of England for themselves all the way to the eastern coasts, Mortimer taking the south of England and the Duke of York taking the north. England would have turned into three countries. My wow. In 1403. I can't imagine that it would have lasted
0: because eventually what would end up happening is either the descendants or immediate one after that, you would have seen something that they would have fought for reunification again. Oh, for sure. But that is still a fascinating thing to think
1: about. It's because of the timing of it, because think about what happens 10 years later. Well, in 10 years, well, you're, August, you're, you're, August. yeah, yeah. You're talking about the continuation of the 100 years war. <laughs> and the <laughs> French were involved in this rebellion.
0: Well, of course they were because anything that they could do, just to over oh, the, the, the English, yeah.
1: But what happened was that army sat across the field from the English army for three months and neither side engaged. And then the French went home. Had they just committed to battle, they probably would have won. But instead, they don't. And then 10 years later, they get their ass kicked at Agincourt. And that cements for a long period of time the the English dominance of that region. You know, the fact that England is not going to be threatened by France. France can't invade England. So had Owen's forces won, not only would England have not been unified enough to withstand invasion, France probably would not have invaded because they would have had their guy. I have to say this.
0: People have been asking me if I could please go back to doing uh, old history videos again. And that sounds like a fascinating one to Isn't think it? about the possibility of what could happen. Because if, if anyone plays any kind of strategy games mm-hmm. or anything like that, Uh, The biggest, most important thing that you'll need to do when staging an invasion, say in Europe, Mm -hmm. if if you're England going after France or France going after England or anything like that, you need to get a staging point first. And this Mm -hmm. is the most important thing for any kind of invasion into a foreign territory is you need to be able to have a place where you will be able to launch further invasions from. And if England is not unified, if it is divided between multiple powers that can be played off of each other. If Wales is just going to let you walk in and spend as much time as you need camping. Then you can easily, easily transport troops over to it mm -hmm. that will
1: allow you to launch further invasions because they're not defended. Exactly. And think about where it is. The French could obviously still invade from the coast like they did under William. Yeah, they could also have invaded from the, from the West, considering where it is, the especially if invasion. the Welsh
0: go down and they cut off Cornwall. That just means that from Brittany, you could just hop ship over to Cornwall mm-hmm. as is. And at this point in history, the English and the Scots are not on great terms. Well, no, no. There's, <laughs> there's been about a hundred or so years at this point prior to of um,
1: a lot of murder at yep. that point. If if it had come down to it, it's very like this is this is why this is such an interesting alternate history scenario is because, sure, let's say they do beat Henry IV, and Henry V never becomes king, and there is a, a Northumbrian kingdom and an English kingdom in the south and a Welsh kingdom in the west and the Scots in the north. Well, do, do the English and the Welsh stay friends that long? Maybe not. And then the Welsh and the Scots have a lot more in common historically. They are both Celtic. They both see themselves as being uh, the descendants of Brutus, from that, do you know the story of Brutus? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they both see themselves as the descendants from that. There's actually a letter sent from Owen Glendower to the Scottish king where he says, um, you know, my cousin, they have no relatives in common. They're cousins because of Brutus, because he's a son of Camber. Brutus, is, or uh, the Scottish king, is a son of Albanicus. So, they, like, they see this, and you, you've got to wonder if there would have been a moment where, would there have been a Scottish, Welsh, and French Alliance against the English, and would then have you seen a Franco-Celtic kingdom in England? (laughs) Like that's it, see, it's
0: fascinating to think about. I cannot help, as the gears are spinning in my head and thinking about what would happen, that it would not be able to last because you're still talking about a significantly smaller population with not nearly as developed of a political structure being able to, while beat in battle and initially take control, you're going to see an uprising oh, or a yeah. series of things that, that would that would flip the table again.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the William saw that same thing when he conquered England. Yeah, he conquered the whole thing. And then he faced like a rebellion every year.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which
1: is why he had to burn half the
0: country to the ground and build castles over the ashes. Yeah. Which is exactly how he controlled for anyone who um for who, who is not as familiar with the story of William the Conqueror and what it is that he did. The reason why there were so many castles dotting England is because for the longest time, William the Conqueror took over the country and then what he proceeded to do in the decades after he took over is that he built these castles and then would use the castles as staging points to raid and burn the countryside for anyone that could potentially be resisting his Mm -hmm. rule. Hell, half the time people were not even resisting his rule. There was the point where um, I'm trying to remember the exact story where someone had shouted like long live the king. And. He took it as like a war cry or a threat, and then actually just attacked and started massacring people.
1: Yep, <laughs> probably assumed it was about Her- Harold Godwinson. <laughs> you got to make those assumptions when you steal the throne. Yeah, um, which you know, as as we know, he did. I, I still love that the the episode of you know Harold Godwinson going over for dinner and him being like, "Do you swear that you can uh, that you'll give me the kingdom after after the king dies." And Harold being like, yeah, sure, I swear. Swear on this table. Okay, you'll swear on the table. Ah, the table is actually the the bones of a saint. <laughs> like, you've been bamboozled. <laughs> and the fact that William was actually upset and asked the Pope to intercede. <laughs> that that's the other thing. If I, I'm again, this is something that I'm I'm pretty sure I'm remembering properly. William asked for his invasion of England to be a crusade. Yes. Like. And I'm pretty sure it was, was it granted? Not at one point? not as a crusade. Yeah, it
0: was. But it was sanctioned. Yes, is the term. So it was deemed to be because it was in violation of a holy promise, like a promise yep. over holy artifacts that that meant that it was uh, that it
1: was blessed by the pope. Yes. Which is just nuts. Like One of the most interesting, and this is going to make people laugh, but one of the most interesting courses I took in college was church and state in the high middle ages. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like it would be so dry and boring, but when you get stuff like the Albigensian crusade,
0: no, because you are also talking about the insanity of the politics of people. Mm-hmm. Try. It's not just like going, Oh, this is theology. No, it's how does the politics of the church try to interact with the state and control people like the, I be- will I'll say this, because this is Gabby's favorite part for in, in anything is she loves sumptuary laws and sumptuary laws and the Catholic church and everything that was going on over the course of the medieval ages, especially going into the Renaissance, when people actually start having more money. And there's when sumptuary laws become very important for people. It's hilarious. It's oh, hilarious yeah. for the church actively trying to control people's lives because they're not just dirt
1: poor anymore. They have money, mm-hmm. so they need <laughs> to have more control over it now. I love it. It's I, I get into a lot of. So I, I also, you know, my content bridges into theology a lot and I get into arguments all the time with uh, with Catholics. About just any number of things, and I have no problem with Catholics. Most of my family's Catholic. We're Italian, but the people that get really into Catholicism, like they're they're a little too a little too proud to be Catholic, are so much fun to argue with because you just bring up stuff like the donation of Constantine, and they'll of course be like, "Oh well, this you know this sacrament and this papal bull," blah, blah, blah. and you're like, "Okay, how do you know it's real? <laughs> what, what do you mean?" Donation Constantine it was fake a fraud it was used for hundreds of years to justify catholic church decisions and it was fraudulent so any any decision that was made as a result of that is fraudulent i mean I, all, and and if if that was fraudulent then what else is fraudulent and you just you start to see the walls breaking down in their minds as they're starting to realize that you know what maybe they've been indoctrinated a little bit about religion and that's you know with with christianity the one of the things that you're you were never supposed to do is there was never supposed to be an earthly hierarchy <laughs> of 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 like men and, and kings and and all of that within a religious framework. So the way that Christianity develops in the Middle Ages as a result of the Catholic Church needing to expand its power to maintain peace and order is one of the other super interesting things about the Middle Ages that I think people miss in sort of this uh, very pedestrian, honestly, understanding of medieval religion in that, you know, oh, the Catholic Church suppressed all the science and blah blah blah, it was a dark ages and the Uh, No, it's far more interesting than that. And And until the
0: Crusades, I've covered this. We did a whole seven part series on this until the Crusades. The Catholic Church really didn't have all that much power. No, they didn't because it was only through the unifying efforts of Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Like, yeah, (laughs) well, I mean, Charlemagne, of course, in the first place is the one that gave the church its first bit of power. Because before you had the church and and the, the big thing about the church is that in order to become pope, you basically had to be a member of an Italian family within rome itself yep. like there was a series of families within rome that were constantly vying for power within the church and so it, it you don't start to really see a lot of outside popes that are outside of italy yeah. really until going into the 900s mm-hmm. everything yeah. prior to that was basically italian and then and the, and when i say italian i mean rome
1: yeah rome italian and then the office of the pope becomes so political and there are people who are just installed as pope like (laughs) let's not forget anti-popes oh yeah of course (laughs) (laughs) it's 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 such a fascinating period of history it's so sad that it gets kind of wrapped up into this dark ages myth that the victorians created where everything was you know evil and sad and everybody was living in filth yeah you know it's uh i was working on a video for my channel the you know the rake copy the creepypasta yeah i was looking into that and sleep paralysis and sleep paralysis demons do you know when the Europeans started writing about sleep paralysis and what they thought the effects were, what they thought thought the causes were. Not off the top of my head, no. The 1200s. There were doctors, and keep in mind in the 1200s, all doctors were priests or monks, yep, who were studying sleep paralysis. And at the time, they were not suggesting, oh, this is demons. No, the doctors were actually sitting there going, this is probably not anything supernatural. We think it's got a cause. We think that that cause is vapors from the stomach, making it up to the brain and screwing with the process of sleep because it occurs most often at the beginning of sleep or the end of sleep. And we think it might be linked to epilepsy. <coughs> 1200s. You can go back further. What's, how do you pronounce his name? Uh, Temison, I think, of uh, Laodicea. Laodicea. I don't know how to pronounce some of these. Greek if words. I had it in front of me, spell like yeah, L-A-O-D-I-C-E-A. Latakia, I think. I think that might be it. I think that's it because Greek doesn't have K's in it um, or doesn't have C's in it. He, he describes it as, you know, something similar, not quite to the extent of like, oh, it's probably epilepsy. That's in the first century B.C. Mm-hmm. Well, the we Chinese were discussing it. it in the 400s in 400 B.C. We like, covered
0: everything when it came to ancient medicine. We did a whole episode on ancient Egyptian medicine and the thoughts behind it. Hell, there was a whole thing for an ancient Egyptian pregnancy test mm-hmm. that you pee on wheat or yep. barley. And if it grew, you're, you're pregnant. And yeah. Because they, you probably were. Like it had, I, I don't even remember what the success rate of it, but it was so oftentimes successful that it's
1: like, yeah, yeah. early <laughs> pregnancy tests. Ancient medicine was far more advanced than we give them any credit for. And the amazing part is that they had to rediscover this stuff like six times. Yep. Because empires collapsed. So the, whatever the ancient Egyptians knew up until 1177, we only know fractions of it. Yep. They are the people that follow them only r- retain fractions. Civilization just would keep expanding and collapsing, expanding and collapsing. And you would just see these vestiges of what the old knew. It the The obvious most it's, it's Roman
0: concrete. Yeah. <laughs> which just, just did a video on here. And yeah. exactly for them figuring it out, which is so amazingly cool. But yeah, even then, it's really thanks to the knowledge that was gained or so much of the knowledge was saved by Arab writers who mm-hmm. copied it yeah. down and then translated it. And then that after the Crusades, you started to see more of the interaction with the Middle East, allowed more of this lost knowledge to start filtering back into
1: Europe again. Mhm and then you see the way the world changes after that is you know obviously the arabs and the franks are seen as you know people who fought each other all the time but there was a ton of cultural exchange and a ton of advancement that came as a result both of peaceful cooperation and military adversarial absolutely that that came out of this a lot of for example uh the advent of rounded castles rounded parapets in europe came out of the crusades prior to that everything was square mhm like And they were like, oh, that's actually a lot harder to assault. Um, We should do that, too. The Arabs started using metal armor more consistently after the Crusades because they kept getting into battles and realizing if they
0: got up and close and
1: personal, wicker shields don't hold up. Not only do wicker shields not hold up, but if that is a if that man in a 50 pound steel suit riding on a horse covered in its own 50 pound steel suit is charging at you, there is not a single thing any of your bows can do to stop him. Like. The way that the Saracens fought, which was primarily up until the Crusades, these light infantry tactics, these light cavalry tactics where you'd have, you know, uh, somebody would be riding on a horse with maybe a leather jerkin and a composite bow and a spear, but they weren't riding into battle in full like chainmail armor. That was a European thing. And for the first time in ever, the Arabs encountered men in full suits of metal armor who they simply could not kill. Which is why you have episodes where 50 Knights Templar route 3,000 Saracens. Correct. Because they would punch through a line here and it would yeah. completely drive them away. You would have to knock the knight off of his horse and pin him down and drag armor off of him, all while hoping that his buddies weren't there to help him. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And the, the best part was infantry, the European infantry. They also knew how to take down those knights. And they were also heavily armored. And when it came to soldier to soldier, there was no competition no. in the first two crusades between the Europeans and the Saracens it was solely a population issue.
0: correct population and then the greatest weakness that the Europeans had was again logistics for having to transport any kind of supplies and infighting and so much infighting we covered this a lot when we did the episodes but the sheer amount of infighting from the different nobles of who's going to be leading this part who's going to be leading what part a person going and prematurely charging into another area because they want the glory Mm -hmm. and they end up getting themselves surrounded and killed which then causes you to lose 50 out of your 200 knights. And that's a huge blow that
1: you have for your overall force. And people don't, they're often referred to as like the tanks of the medieval battlefield, but I don't think people quite realize how real that is. It was hard to kill these guys. Mm -hmm. Like to the point where the best way to do it was with a bill hook. And the point of the bill hook was to reach up, hook the knight's neck and pull them off of their horse. And then you didn't even kill them. At that point you took all their weapons and dragged them to the back of the battlefield so you could ransom them off later because you got to keep the ransom, (laughs) even if you were a common soldier. So knights were, it was basically like if you captured a tank in World War II, like you weren't going to just blow the tank up, you were going to take the tank back and see what you could get out of it. Yep. So they they very valuable material, very much were the tanks, the fighter jets, like they they were the the ultimate warrior for a solid 400 years, which is just insane. Until you get gunpowder. It is insane. There is one thing I want to snag while we still have like 10 minutes left. Okay. Do you know the Tartaria conspiracy? Oh my God, are we are we actually going to get into this? I, I just really quickly. We, I, I just, I'm curious. Actually I, going to we don't need to get this. into it because it would take us days, but I just, I'm curious if you ever interacted with any of them. No, no. Because the thing is, I don't go into, I've seen a couple in
0: comments because I have talked about things in a couple stuff in, in Turkey before. I have talked about ancient stuff with Persia. And inevitably, when you talk about any of the ancient empires or powerful forces that is in Central Asia, it is something that there will be a couple comments, but I have never actually engaged with. For anyone who doesn't know what this is, and I'll give a brief summary before you (laughs) go ahead and go into it. There is this idea that is held by certain, it's not even Turkish nationalists, uh, though there are some people who attribute it to Americans who believe it. There's a number of people who believe. That much like the ancient city of Atlantis, that there was a ancient empire called Tartaria and that it expanded across everything that we would think of as the steppes and into Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Like it was the it was v- if you had the Mongols and combined them with Atlantis, super mm-hmm. advanced, super developed, extremely powerful, control this wide reaching territory. But they were so dangerous that history essentially wiped them out from the record. So Which that would I be guess the only no one ever done that. Yeah. <laughs> so that no one could ever repeat being them again, I guess. But they made one mistake,
1: Stephen. What is that? They forgot to take them off the maps. Damn. <laughs> they wiped out their entire history, culture, religion, their, their population. Nobody remembers them, but we forgot the maps. And, you know, it's, it just so happens that around the, the late 1800s, those regions start getting referred to as Eurasia instead, because that was the cover up, not because Eurasia made more sense than Tartaria, mm-hmm. because Tartar was just a term that referred to the people to who sauce, lived on the yes. steps like <laughs> it was just and, and that it's wild. You sit here and I, I have not. I mean, I did one podcast on it where I kind of went into it and like why this is all ridiculous. I also did a Twitch stream where we watched a Tartaria truthers uh, video and I live on Twitch from memory debunked every single one of his points. And I'm not even I'm not even a historian of Asia. I'm a medievalist. Mm-hmm. And I was a I, and again, knowing very little about Asia, I was able to sit there and point out why every single one of his points was wrong. But it's it goes deeper than the people who think it was just. Asia, there are people who think that the chicago world's fair buildings you know the ones that are basically made of wood and plaster yeah, I, but it looks like they were made of stone I, I did an entire thing on that they were all except for 3 buildings all were built to be temporary exactly yeah. they think that those were all real buildings and that they just disappeared they were you know they're like well how could you build that so fast and why would you build it for something so small and it's like do you understand what the chicago world's fair was for its time <laughs> it was the greatest meeting Of technology and culture to ever take place in the world. Yep. It was as if you made a, you got a tent Mm -hmm. and then you combined a tent with a marble temple. Yep. And And like, that's what it was. And it was America's first real opportunity to show the entire world what America could do. You think they were just going to set up a couple of tents? No, they were going to build stuff that rivaled what was in Rome. And the whole point was to show Europe that the United States was just as great as they were, that it wasn't some backwater where everybody was a farmer, which is what Europeans thought of us, Mm -hmm. Like that we were a nation with with soul and passion and ambition. And to do that, they were going to make some buildings that looked really impressive, but also they didn't need those buildings, so why make them permanent? Um, It was basically to show what we can do, not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And there are people who believe that those buildings were all Tartarian, and that the, uh, those temples in Southeast Asia, the ones that are like sort of like pyramids, but just kind of like a little bit more rounded that go up, like in Thailand. Oh, 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 like with like, like the, they're not even ziggurats, but it's yeah. like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, like those Angkor Yeah. The ones that are made out of completely non conductive stone. Mm hmm. Power station, because it kind of sort of looks like modern power stations that are made out of metal and cables and meant to transmit electricity. Never mind that there's absolutely no way any of that, 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 that stone could, conduct anything with any degree of effectiveness, you'd have to make those things out of like pure quartz, and still connect them, which they aren't. There are people who believe that the God, what was, it? I think it was the, um, one of the Canadian provinces. It starts with a W Winnipeg, Winnipeg. Yeah. Winnipeg city hall, the old one, magnificent building. Now it's, you know, basically a brick municipal building, but back when it first came out, magnificent building. And they're like that was Tartarian. It was it was wiped after Tartaria was was wiped off the earth. To you know when that building was demolished? No, I 1967, don't. I think. So, as far as the Tartaria people are concerned, my mother was born a year after Tartaria was wiped off the map. My grandparents would have been alive for this at a time when the radio existed and TV Tartaria would have existed with the Soviet union and with world war
0: II and with everything yeah. that that wouldn't so, make any, se- any sense. So when on, exactly hold on, hold hold on. was Tartaria Get finally demolished? Wait, I'm very confused from this because any also, argument, also, I've argument I've ever heard of Tartaria goes back like a thousand years or so. Like any mention of Tartaria stops after like the 1500s basically, because of exploration mm-hmm. and that's when all that is happening
1: nothing nothing past that point what oh yeah as you dive real deep in and this is why like I, I can't have conversations with a lot of the Tartaria people is because they, they have no unified theory here it's Tartaria was you know a great worldwide empire Well, was it worldwide or was it just in Asia well it was most advanced in Asia but it also was at the Chicago World's Fair well what, what do you mean <laughs> oh well they also built Rome well it, Rome has existed the whole time and no mention of Tartaria. Well, there was a mud flood. Yeah, but Rome was never covered in a mud flood. Where are you talking like and it just goes on and on and on. They it's one of those conspiracy theories where there is an answer to every single question they have, but nobody bothered to look for what it was and then asked questions on top of it and they were like, "Well, if that's you know, oh, well, we don't know how It sounds like a joke conspiracy like the flying yeah. spaghetti monster. Yeah, it's like we don't know how the Romans built the Colosseum. We do, actually. We know exactly how they did it. They obviously used a concrete we only just recently figured out how to make, but we know how they built the Colosseum. We know why the Colosseum works. Mm-hmm. So there's that. <laughs> um, and then they go on top of that. They're like, well, if we don't know how they built the Colosseum, how did, how did they build Rome? And why is everything so big? Those steps are really, they they're giants? Do we know if they're, we don't know if there were giants? Well, if we don't know if there were giants, then. Like it just goes on and on and on feeds into itself. And the funny thing is even the questions that they're asking that are based off of like 10 steps of ridiculous premises. Even those questions still have reasonable answers. Like just go ask a, an architect, an architectural historian, how'd they build the Colosseum. They'll be able to tell you it's not a mystery. <laughs> oh, well what about, you know, these, these auditoriums, these amphitheaters that we're finding underneath, you know, under, underneath all this, this dirt that that must've been put there by the mud flood or, the amphitheater went out of use in the second century BC and then over 2000 years, mud and dirt and things piled up on it, like as
0: happens throughout all of the archaeological <laughs> digs, like when you dig and you find that's why when you go to different Egyptian <laughs> sites, and you're like, oh, yes, you think you found an Egyptian artifact? No, you found a Arab artifact from the seventh century. Dig like six more feet down. Oh, look, you found the Ptolemaic. Oh, we look, found, you found
1: Troy seven layers.
0: Yes. Deep. Seven layers of cities. I should probably do a whole story on that one as well, because that, t- to be fair, is actually one of my favorite stories is how they actually found Troy. Yeah.
1: It's, it's Schliemann. What a guy. <laughs> the early archaeologists were literally just rich people who wanted to do hobby. something. <laughs> it was a
0: hobby. Early archaeologists, I guess this is like the final thing that we're going to leave this on, just, yeah. just to say this. Early archaeologists were the equivalent of what you would have for. I'm going to equate it to people who would paint Warhammer 40K miniatures. Like right. it's their hobby that they're obsessed with, would dump a ton of money in. And then it doesn't even matter if they build a conglomeration or something that doesn't make any kind of sense going into it, like or like if nothing matches, they they specifically go into a situation because they want to make a name for themselves. And actually, I don't even know why I drew that back to 40K. I'm just thinking of like hobbyists who are obsessed with creating something. But the short of it is the amount of times that you'd have. It's usually partners. It's not one guy. It's usually partners. It's not Indiana Jones-esque people. It's rich nobleman who wants to make a name for himself, pays a guy with actual experience to go out into the field, guy in the field, finds something, calls his boss up. Who's like, oh, hey, check it out. We found this thing. Rich Noble comes in is like, oh, my God, look at what we found. And then puts his name over all of it. Yep. (laughs) It's, It's every time it happens. It's hilarious to me.
1: Yeah, it's, oh my God. Th- thank God for rich people who decided they were at least interested in finding out about the past because a lot of people will, you know, we make fun of it, but if it wasn't for that, we yeah. wouldn't have it, like hardly any of the knowledge that we do now. Yeah, like, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's, it's not ideal the way that we found out about all this stuff, but we wouldn't have found out about it otherwise. So it's kind of, it's kind of good, you know? <laughs> like
0: There is, um, and I think this is the final note that I will leave yeah. this on because it's a, it's a, it's not a dumb event in history. It's just a dumb thing that would occur. My favorite thing. And it, I also hate it, but my favorite thing historically, when it came to archaeology is the cases where people at archaeological digs would pay locals for artifacts that they could find. Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter as to whether it was a complete artifact or pieces mm. of an artifact. They would be paid relatively the same. Obviously, if you find a complete thing, that's better, but break it into three pieces and, and those three pieces
1: will make more than together than the one complete yeah, one. Think would. They would have thought to be like, all right, if you bring me something complete, I'll pay you double. So this was happening with fossils, especially this was a huge thing. People were looking for like skulls of like early humans and things. And
0: locals were just breaking them apart to sell pieces of the fossils to the archaeologist or not to like to the paleontologists. Mm-hmm. And they were doing the same thing with like complete sets of pottery that they were finding for archaeologists and breaking those. And it's just it hurts my, it hurts soul, my soul to think about.
1: Ugh. so much stuff was lost when it was literally found. We tried so hard and got so far, <laughs> but in the end, it didn't
0: even matter. But on that note. I think that we're going to go ahead and end our rant podcast thing here with no central. Hold on. What did we even cover here today? We started
1: off with a fantastic question.
0: Yeah, we, we started off with like, oh, we didn't talk about Vikings before to, oh, let's jump into an extenuous history of Celts. England and Celts and react interactions and hypotheticals of what ifs touched on the Crusades to going to the Crusades Angevin of an empire to the end of an empire to going into archaeology and paleontology. Yeah. Or should we mention Tertullia? Uh, yeah, yes, of course. Reasonable, very reasonable, reasonable day, discussion. I think. Yes, nothing, <laughs> nothing wrong with this whatsoever. Well, for everyone who has listened today, thank you very much. I hope you all have a good rest of your day. Make sure to check out the links in the um, in the description below. Uh, make sure to support us by checking out our coffee, which actually, no, no, hold on, before I even forget this. Our, this is our coffee. Yes, our <laughs> coffee as well, because I say this for both, because. The history of everything has a coffee, but actually, with the exact same coffee
1: producer, Aiden Mathis and the Lore Lodge, yep. they have their own coffee. Yeah, if you go to the page where you can get uh, Stephen's coffee, it, if you go to the collaborations page right next to it, you'll see Mount Pocono Park. Yeah, uh, that's ours. <laughs> yep. So
0: get that. Check us out on Patreon. Either way, I hope you all have a good rest of your day. Thank you very much for listening. Also, get this month's audiobook and goodbye, everyone. Bye, um. guys.